Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I guess most of you have been hanging out, right? You've been around, been hanging out around here. Uh, for you new people, welcome. This has uh, been going on for a while. Uh, we've been talking. We've had an ongoing conversation here, uh, me and, and whoever's been here since... Whenever some of you've been here for over a decade, having the ongoing conversation, that's what it is. Everything that I do is just part of an ongoing conversation, sometimes with other people, sometimes with you, sometimes with myself. But I've noticed that with my stand up or with whatever I'm doing here, it's just an ongoing conversation. And so many people have been here through a lot of stuff, and I'm finding that I've been there for a lot of your stuff as well. I always kind of knew it, but I don't know if I fully, it's not appreciate, but it's, there's a, it's, it's a type of empathy, I guess, where I'll get emails from people that say, you know, we, we went through breakups together or you were there for me. When I, and I, and I, and I understand that. And I'm glad that I was there, but obviously I wasn't there, you know, right there with you, but I was there with you in your head. But like, if I really think about what that, the, the sort of weight of that, the gravity of it that uh, I've been there like it gets me uh, gets my heart all all welled up how's everything with you guys all right are you it's fucking horrendous come on who are we kidding it's fucking horrendous every day is fucking horrendous now that I feel a little a smidge better where I can actually set aside time to cry about my sadness and my loss and set aside some other time to take in the news whole-mindedly and feel that fucking weight that fucking grief you just feel like you watch the fucking news sometimes and you feel like somebody is punching you in the goddamn chest the authoritarian fist of garbage just right in your chest i don't know i'm just running running with the fist thing you want to know who's on the show let's do that um Colin Jost is on the show. Uh, this season will be his 15th year at Saturday Night Live. He has a new book out tomorrow, July 14th, called The Very Punchable Face. Oh, maybe that's maybe that's where I'm, I'm hung up on it, on the fist and the punching and the heart clench like a fist. I think if it was another time, 
now we're two months into um, Lynn died a little over two months ago. And, you know, I feel the hole, I feel the void, I feel the pain, I can see, you know, my, I have to struggle not to perceive the world through the hole in my heart. That is not a great lens. I have to separate, compartmentalize. I have to, you know, deal with the spiritual realm. I have to deal with the mystical realm. I have to deal with the practical realm of loss. On any given day, you know, when you listen to the news, it's it's terrible. Wear your fucking mask, stupid. Seriously. It's like, Jesus. But on any given day, it's really the, the challenge is compartmentalizing and realize that I've got this sadness, the deep sadness. I guess we all have that. The deep sadness of like, why the fuck am I here? You know, who did this to me? Why did it? Why was I brought here? Why? And then the, the next layer, which is my girlfriend's dead. And then the world doesn't seem to be working out. That's put in, that's diplomatic. This shit, the experiment is not working. This is some banana republic bullshit. Then there's the plague level. It's hard to separate this shit out and just sit there and be like, it's okay on the porch right now. But what do I do for relief? It's the relief thing. I'm not prone to seek out healthy relief. You know, I'm just not. Or healthy rewards. Just not. You know, and I guess this quarantine is helping me keep shit manageable. You know, outside of the occasional ice cream, I guess I've been eating okay, but I eat a lot. That's all right. That's okay. Acting out like that's fine. You know, just shove your mouth full of stuff. Just keep stuffing stuff into your face hole till you're happy and comfortable and feel sick. That's not a healthy way to do it, but it's, you know, depending on what you eat, right? I can't drink. Can't do no drugs. Haven't. Don't want to. Haven't even dipped back into the nicotine. Can't fuck. So that's, I think that's one of the things that, you know, you don't hear about in the more, in the sadness of grief, how much you miss somebody, the whole, the love. What about the fucking, man? That's gone too. God damn. And now like, you know, what am I? I'm the guy fucking just eating ice cream and jerking off again. Full circle. I've landed back. God damn it. And, you know, I, I, I guess if it were another time, I've never been through this, but certainly when you break up with somebody after a couple months, you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I got to fuck. But this is different. This is much sadder. There's no revenge impetus. <laughs> there's no like which one of her friends <laughs> you know there's no it's just sad so even if i chose to act out sexually which i which is very difficult during a quarantine i think you know really you know fucking in the age of aids was easier than this because it's like you can protect yourself now not only do you not know 
but you can't you can't just put a coating on your entire body. You just can't do it. You can't. It's like ugh. it's better though. It's better, right? It's better. Thank God for quarantine. Or then, I'd, you know, after a few months, it'd be like, who wants to fuck the sad man? I'm emotionally incapable of connecting because I'm so profoundly consumed in grief. But can we just, you know, touch the things? Can we put the things in the things? Nope. You're on your own, pal. So in other words, because of the quarantine and because of, you know, a certain amount of recovery mindedness, you know, I can't uh, I can't do much of anything that doesn't involve just me and food. And I'm more terrified than ever of getting this fucking disease. I'm not doing shit. But my friend Kitelinger, she gave me a hat with a fucking vi- a windshield on it. I went to Whole Foods wearing a mask and a like a golf hat with a full windshield, like a beekeeper's outfit. Fuck it. I just ordered some more plastic shields. I can't. Scary, man. It's just fucking scary. And you know what I started to realize too? It's like, you know, I you know, I got my problems, but there's a lot of people dealing a lot with a lot worse shit than me. My friend Lori, uh Lori Kilmartin lost her mom to the COVID. And she's been pretty uh, aggressively funny about it in a very dark and painful way. You should check out her uh, Twitter feed going all the way back. She basically live tweeted um, her mother dying of COVID, uh, which was heavy. It's fucking heavy, man. But, you know, I've been talking to other people. I've been, you know, I talk to my friend Sam Lipside every night, who is, uh, you know, a dear friend. And he's really been there for me every fucking night. And last night, I don't know, I think something shifted in me because I was able to kind of like get out of myself, listen to him. It was great. It felt, I felt good. I got choked up a couple of times just thinking about being a father, all these things that, you know, being the father of a kid in high school, things I never did. I'm, I'm getting a, a contact emotional high, get a little choked up about the struggles. Nothing tragic. Just, you know, I think the common struggles of raising children in any world, but the world now where they can't do anything. Oh, my God. So that was nice. I'm just I'm just I'm what I'm doing right now is I'm saying I know a lot of you guys got your fucking plates full and uh, my heart goes out to you. We're all trying to get through this and uh, we have a president that likes to hurt us more. And there's no clear leadership. The center cannot hold. It does not seem. What strange beast slouches towards Bethlehem to be born? Good question. Somebody answer it. All right, look, uh, enough. Enough. Uh, Colin Jost, is, uh, he's got a book coming out, A Very Punchable Face, a memoir. Comes out tomorrow, July 14th, but you can uh, pre-order it now. And uh, we talk about some interesting about him. About, there's interesting Pete Davidson, Colin Jost uh, connection that that is very touching. Uh, this is me and Colin coming right up. Mm-hmm. 
Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, buddy. Hi. I, okay, I get it. You read books. I understand. <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed with the books. That's great. What did you actually go back to Harvard to do this? Like what the, the books? fuck is that? <laughs> yeah to, no to shoot this they're, they're you, all the they're library? all hollow they're just uh they're just uh -huh. for show you there's ones you buy in bulk uh-huh <laughs> right you had a set deck come in and <laughs> just can you make me look smart on my facetime video you've got a rolling stones poster framed up you know I'm, yeah exactly so point being you're cool <laughs> <laughs> what's going on man whose house is that is that your place yeah i, I I'm, we're, we're back in the city for like one one day just um to like see if everything's okay like collect mail and all that stuff oh so you guys have been holed up in the country or something yeah in, out of montauk we've been there for like, oh we, we went out just for a weekend like in when we had a break from snl and then that that turned into yeah. whatever 120 days or whatever it's been so i've read a lot of the book uh and actually and i and i don't usually but i read it was funny and i enjoyed it and i and i got i think i'm i made it a little more than two-thirds through and you do succeed in creating somewhat of a sympathetic character of yourself and uh <laughs> a miracle but what happens at the end do you, do you end up with the the movie star and the good job right <laughs> Um, I, there's no, the ending is more of, uh, you know, probably ending more in existential crisis than anything else, but, uh, oh, yeah, really? probably, but, but yeah, no, that's there. It's more, there's, there's sort of weirder episodes toward the end, but, um, actually the biggest laugh I got, what do you think is the biggest laugh in your book? Oh my God. I don't even, I don't remember what's all for all the talk about writing and being funny. You can tell me you don't know what the biggest laugh well, in the I know. book for you is. I'm, I'm fascinated to know what you what you found. <laughs> when you found. when you wrote the book and you're like, that's a good joke. That's gonna stay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I I different. I heard different things from different people, like friends when they read it. What they what line they liked. So I'm curious. Well, it's for me because like you know I like you know things that are directly related to experience for for some reason, but that beat where the cops come in into Chicago, you know, they break in with the full riot gear and you say, uh, I became a scared high school student again and throw my beer on the floor, even though it's perfectly legal for a 30 year old man to drink a beer in a private home. <laughs> I went, I laughed twice at that. Oh, thank you. The idea, so, the you idea know that of exactly. reacting quickly. Just, <laughs> like, I know. I'm not holding a beer. I don't have a beer. When you're 30, <laughs> when you're 30 and you go back to your, 
your full high school anxiety that's uh, retrospect yeah. very funny yeah. thing to do oh yeah i've been uh you know in, you know in a car and you know you see a cop coming up on you like be cool like what am i do? i'm 56 what am i doing <laughs> be cool <laughs> cops i'm i'm i have anxiety about those things where when i'm going in a store and there's like a security guard at the store i almost make a yeah. show of leaving with my like showing that i'm not shoplifting you know what yeah, I, I, yeah. i'm so worried about conflict <laughs> that they'll say are you even you know like that i'll be mis uh, mistakenly you know uh, oh god that's, that's how afraid i am have you ever been in one of those situations where the the buzzer goes off and you oh, don't yeah. know why even though you or you yeah, did you bought terrible. something and then you suddenly you're like yeah. i i swear i bought it uh you know have you ever stolen things and gotten away with it uh no, I don't think I've ever stolen it. I remember an incident as a kid stealing a a dog's a leash from a neighbor's house and like wow. stealing it and putting it down a sewer drain. And I that's like one, a really haunting memory in my mind. I was like, why did I do that? I don't know what I, what caused me to do that. And that's still like... Have you figured it out? No, I don't. I haven't. Do you know the neighbor or the dog or... Anything? I don't remember which neighbor, which dog. I just remember doing it. And then I remember feeling it's like so horrible about myself. Like, why would I do wow. that? Wow. You didn't kill the dog. No, just no. It wasn't like a good garbage. son. I watched The Good Son the other day and I was like, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> right. You're not a monster. <laughs> you, I, it's, it's hard for me to believe that you come from Staten Island for some reason. And I don't. I don't know a, a lot about it other than I lived in New York for a decade or however long I lived there, a couple de 15 years. And I, you know, I always knew it was over there. And I always knew that uh, there was no reason to go there, really. <laughs> and I knew, I knew about the dump. Yeah. Uh, and I knew about the mob. And I knew about, like, it was just this weird uh, kind of dark place that uh that i knew eddie pepitone came from yeah, there yeah but uh other than that i would never like i was surprised to find out even though i know you mentioned it on the show that you come from there so it seems to me that you must have gone through some effort to erase as much of that as possible from from your from how people perceive you like a conscious effort yes for sure i i there was a lot of <laughs> there was a lot of running away from it i mean physically commuting in for high school and also wanting to probably still be on the move a little bit and also ad adapting, you know, always wanting to, uh, I don't know, change where I am or change what, what's going on, you know? Yeah. But how, uh, but like, do you have family members that are, you know, deep Staten Island? Like they talk the talk. And oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I, I, <laughs> had trouble speaking for a long time in my life. And then I, when I did learn, I actually had a very thick Staten Island accent, like super. Yeah. What was that? You learned how, when did you learn how to talk? Four. And no, there's no, there's no medical explanation for that. You just like, and you don't have a ton of brothers, right? You only have one brother. Yeah, I, have, I have one younger brother. Casey. So there was no reason for you not to talk. <laughs> you just didn't talk. No, there, there wasn't. No. And I think it was getting to the point of, of, probably some real fear um, on the part of my family, uh, uh -huh. which is why I went to like a, you know, hospital speech therapist. But yeah, I don't know I mean, if there was a medical reason they have not told me. Yeah. But my parents would be the parents that would not would bury something that would be um, that would be traumatic. They would they would rather keep it to themselves and not and not burden me with it in some way. Oh, really? So Still? I, I can't, I, I've tried. I can't always get a straight answer out of them. Really? So even now? 
you're a grown person that's worked through some stuff. You've written a book, and they're still gonna go, you know, go to the grave with the secrets of why well, they, they you may also, not have talked. They may have buried them for themselves too. Oh, right. That's the thing you realize later in life. Like they may not have. T- parents sometimes don't tell you things because they've buried it themselves and don't work. You know, don't yeah. figure out how to do it. Well, I mean, right. it was sort of interesting to me that like no one could figure out the name of the hot speech therapist. I know everyone was just like it was this beautiful blonde woman, and I was like, <laughs> name, first name, last name, nothing, and you really yeah. couldn't track her down. No, and I kept asking, and that's what made me almost more suspicious of my mom that there was some other darker thing I didn't know. I was like, wait, you don't remember this woman who like saved your son's life and yeah. taught him how to speak? You give him, you give her a lot of credit. I, I do. I mean, I, I I still give her a lot of credit like every day. I'm very grateful. Did you try to go to the hospital and ask or do some research in the records? Again, I was too trusting of my <laughs> mom that I was like, can, can, does the hospital, she was like, the hospital doesn't have that. Oh, right. So I just yeah. thought, oh, I guess they don't, but maybe they it, don't. I don't know. Maybe they don't have that kind of thing. I think, I think it would be nice to reach out to her, but I guess, I don't know. You know, usually people can find you if they want to find you to say like, Hey, I'm here. I remember like when I started SNL, I was talking to Amy Poehler about it and she was like, you got to find this woman. Yeah. Like this is going to be, she would be so grateful to get to talk to you Yeah. now, you know? And yeah. I was like, I have to. And then I really tried to figure out and my, truly my parents said, there's, we don't have any medical records of you before the age of 12. <laughs> That seems crazy. Which is also a very evasive statement, don't you think? But isn't your mother a doctor? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, so I yeah, I wouldn't trust that information. But it was it's Staten Island, so my doctor growing up was just like an uncle that I would No, be I know. Yeah, I grew oh, up with I that. Like, see Uncle Lou, you know. Yeah. He so your mom there were other doctors in the family and you everything was sort of a social call. It was never a real visit. Yeah, I do, I mean I kind of just trusted that A he was a doctor and B that he was an uncle. <laughs> <laughs> your, your 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 parents seem to have signed off on it so you went along with it <laughs> yeah you don't really know any other way oh yeah Th- those can those stories can be you know bad or you know good i'm glad it was okay but did you like when you so you did your mom have a practice growing up yeah she has a family medicine practice that she's had this whole time so you know she she had a family medicine practice my dad uh was a teacher at staten island tech uh on high school on staten island mm-hmm. so between the two of them like so many people on staten island either had my dad as a teacher or my mom as a doctor like they're they're when you go out to dinner on staten island it's crazy how many more people know them than me yeah all right well people walk up to her and they're like remember me you fixed, you know, right, that kind of thing. It's like when you're a comedian, if someone says, remember me, I saw you at a right. show in Missouri 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, you, audience member. I yeah. It's the same for her. She's like, how can she remember all these people? Well, it depends who they are. Oh, yeah, the guy who ruined the show. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Someone's like, remember, I yelled that thing at you. And you're yeah, like, oh, yeah. Wow, oh, right. Yeah, now I remember you. Yeah. You're the guy who threw the thing. Yeah. Okay. Great. But that's so funny. So she has. She probably did remember. She probably saw a lot of them as kids, and they just kind of remember like that. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. totally. They had. She has a lot of kid. You know, a lot of kid patients. But that, that but are, that's probably why you don't have records, is because she probably did most of the doctoring. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. I, I, I'm again. I, that's my. That's my assumption. But as you're asking me now today, I start having a lot of more suspicious conspiracy theories. You know. Maybe you're not even their kid. 
<laughs> I thought we'd go deep. I wouldn't go. I didn't think we were going to go this deep this quickly. Wow. <laughs> Maybe that's what's being hidden. They, they found you. Maybe one of her patients was like, I don't want this one. And she, your mother agreed to raise it as her own. Yeah, more of a penguin kind of uh, right. abandoned race. Maybe maybe the speech therapist was more of a circus uh, performer that raised me. Yeah. You know, and I didn't realize, you know, to get. Yeah, you were the boy that didn't talk. You were a traveling act for a little while. <laughs> but I, I don't like it, it is odd to me, though, that you're able to, like, if you wanted to, could you speak Staten Island? Do you speak it when you go back? Yeah, certain phrases, like even saying like Staten Island is like yeah. you, it's hard to say that no one, I've never heard anyone, even not from Staten Island, stuck called like Staten Island, where you yeah. hear the T's. Right. Um, <laughs> it's really funny. Like even like Verrazano Bridge, they just now, like uh, this year, corrected the spelling. They had misspelled the name of the explorer that they named the bridge after. And it just got, it just got, and they fixed. just were like, oh, maybe we should spell his name correctly. <laughs> <laughs> but like when you were growing up, like what, so your younger brother, what's he do? Is he, he's in show business, right? He, he, he's been uh, working on that show and practical jokers since it started with all those guys who are all from Staten Island. They all went to this uh, school called Monsignor Farrell high school on Staten Island. And, uh, my brother went there. My brother's younger, but he went there, and and then they started doing stuff together. And then that show, that show happened. Like I, I, I picture that to be more of a Staten Island undertaking. It's very Staten. Island. I mean, it, it's like yeah. born and bred in Staten Island. Right. I mean, so, but like I can't. Like I don't. It seems like you've done everything to to erase it. I just, I'm glad you own up to it in the book, but it still seems like you're some sort of weird magical elf person that, you know that. <laughs> That was just passing through Staten Island, you know, for some reason. <laughs> uh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny either or magical yeah. elf person or native Staten Islander. <laughs> well, it's like, the, like, it's like it all ties into the idea that you're not really your parents' child and that somehow oh you were, God. that you were found. And, and now look at you, you didn't talk for four years, four years till you're four years old because you innately knew like, I don't, these people, I can't let on who I really am. And then all of a sudden you, you, you learn how to talk and then you go to Harvard and you know, you're engaged to Scarlett Johansson. There's no, no, there's nothing Staten Island about that story. Yeah, no, this is this suddenly this uh, found found child theory is really adding up. All the pieces it's, are connected. Yeah. You're, I mean, it's on you to say, to fix everything. You're the you're the golden one. Are you up for it? I mean, I know no. the story about the stand up and everything. That's cute and everything. But but, you know, this you have big responsibilities at just point in history. Yeah. Uh -huh. sure. I, I, <laughs> I just rewatched the Eddie, Mur you know, uh, Golden Child, which I hadn't seen since probably I was whatever. Yeah. Since I was like eight or something. Yeah. And that is what a trippy, weird, fun movie that is. It's like okay. such a surreal thing. I haven't watched it. I haven't watched it. I forgot there's just like full dragon person in it and shadow figure and all this oh, stuff. Really? I forgot how much, how like spiritual it got. Oh I man, I, I've, I, I should, I definitely have to watch it now. So when yeah. does the, uh, how does it work? Like, so you, how did you get out? It, I, just education. Like that's, that's how I got, I, I got out cause I, I got into this high school this like free Catholic high school in the city yeah. and I commuted in and it, that was the only way I got out. Like it was always going to be, I had to like, 
it, education was the way to way out, I think, for me. And and was it Catholic school? You how Catholic were you brought up? Uh, I always say now I was raised Catholic. The way I think a lot of Catholics say like I was raised Catholic. The way you say like I was raised by wolves. Yeah, like yeah, that kind of vibe. right, right. But I I don't. You know, my mom still goes to mass every Sunday. I went to mass every Sunday through through the beginning of college, but it was always more like it was never. It was weirdly never super religious for me. It right. was always reflection and taking that time to kind of think about I don't know almost intention or think about people in your life or things mm. you're grateful for things you want you know you you want to figure out. Um, and was then, there something calming about the? Uh the hymns and chants and weirdness of the Catholic church. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's really repressed, which, which I liked, you know, it made sense to me, you know, it was not, no one's in your business. You're not forced to sing. Most people are just kind of half singing or not paying attention. You know, you, you can do your own uh, journey at a, yeah. at a Catholic mass. It seems like many Catholics have done their own journey. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's few that follow the exact rules of the prescribed journey. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the thing I always, the thing I remember learning was the idea of conscience. And mm -hmm. I always like the pure version of conscience is if you have fully examined something in your, in your heart and your mind, and you really believe this is the right thing to do, you're, then you can go against what the tenets of your faith are because you've really taken the time to think about that. And I always thought that was such a great, loophole in a good way for a religion to say like if you really are looking at yourself and this religion and you don't believe in something trust your conscience and i i that's not a big played up thing in catholicism i think it's more modern and recent but i do think that's a great concept but there yeah it is is, is there a catch to it that is the next step and then go apologize no uh yeah i mean there's a i don't know if there's a catch like but you might go to hell i don't know if that's a catch which seems like a pretty big one <laughs> yeah I, I think it's like you can't they can't force you to hell if you really were pure in and your conscience exactly. so you don't know when that was added like that it, like it seems like a way to sort of move the religion forward it's a relatively progressive idea I think so. I bet it was emphasized more in the last 30 years than when it was all in Latin. <laughs> right. But like your parents, I mean, your mom's a doctor. She couldn't have been that nuts with the with the Catholic thing. Oh, she was very I mean, she was pro-choice always. She was yeah. in favor of gay marriage. She was yeah. I mean, she was a she was a pioneering woman who worked in the fire department when there were no women in the fire department. So she didn't give a shit about a lot of social things. What she liked about it was, I think, the the community of it and the, again, like the, the trying the reflecting and trying to be a better person of it. So when you went to the Catholic school, that's when you kind of were able, I, I don't think people really understand the, the difference, you know, between Staten Island, you know, and the rest of the world. So for you to sort of go to school in the city, that's like a big fucking deal. It was a completely different world. Like Staten Island is not far from New York geographically, but as you know, and right. is is like light years different. I mean, it's like you go out on the island, they're like New York, what? You know, it's crazy. No, it's like Southern being in like Southern New Jersey mm -hmm. or something. It's a feel. It feels like a very different uh, strain. And even among suburbs, it's weird. It's not like other suburbs either. No, you know? there's a darkness there. Yeah. <laughs> there is 
There when you live on an island that was the largest landfill in the world. Yeah. Like this is in a modern era when we were competing against like landfills in China. Yeah. And China, we were yeah. filling this one up faster. Yeah. That's a, that's like a different world. So it's, is it still, it's not active anymore, right? They, you, no, they closed it, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. So now it's just a mountain? It's now a mountain. And then every time you go home, there's some new theory about what they're going to do with it. Like one was, we might have buffaloes come and wander the hills. You know, you're like, what? what? Great. Where is it? Who's do, Who's bringing them in? Do they yeah. want to come? I don't think they want to come. Wander the toxic mountain. <laughs> Not just that, but like there's all the weird Dutch shit. Like, there isn't you kind of gave a brief history in the book of Staten Island to kind of justify your foundation as a true Staten Island person? <laughs> like, you know, your family's been there since it was like, you know, what there was just a few families and farms or something, right? Yeah, I mean, my my like my Irish ancestors on Staten Island from like the 1860s, 1870s are buried like under a golf course. The oh, 18th yeah. hole of a golf course. And you, you guys know, like, all knew that. We, yeah, I didn't actually know that till later on. And I was like, oh, shit, I should have uh, paid my respects, I guess. I don't know what At you the golf you course. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Really, I don't know how you do that. They just plowed like, over the fucking graveyard or was it were they buried in a trench because of disease? This is way before people thought maybe we shouldn't plow over a graveyard. I mean, oh, this, okay. that probably they were like, move the stones, and they didn't yeah, expect why the poltergeist. Irish situation. graveyard. <laughs> so you're you're just are you all Irish? No, you're Irish. German, 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 and Irish. Where'd the Germans come from? Uh, my grandfather was an immigrant um, who came in nine. He came as a kid with his parents who spoke only German. Um, they came, I think, in 19, 1920, something oh, like that. Okay. Um, and they, I don't, they, my, my uncle said they may, there may be, they may have been German and maybe half like Jewish German. He wasn't sure. Like huh. he's been trying to figure out their, their heritage. But you should get on that show that I did, Finding Your Roots. Call Henry Gates. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, uh, Scarlett did it and said it was like, it was nuts. Like she found out, you know, yeah. Uh, a, you know, her grandfather was in a hall, you know, in concentration camps and had survived wow. and all this crazy. And she found all this crazy stuff out. It was a real. Did they, was that already on her episode? Uh, yeah, I think, I think a couple years ago. I'm, oh. I, I, haven't, I haven't actually watched it. She was, she told me about it, but I haven't seen it. Is she forbidding you to watch it? There's things she doesn't want no, to No, no, no. <laughs> it, it was, I don't think there was anything too, too dark that came out. But I know. So you're going to school with the Catholic high school and that, that's like, but this is like, like this is where you start learning about what books, writing, yeah, and things, books, writing, and and like uh, critical thinking, you know, like questioning things uh, was was it. But really, the biggest thing was it was like finding your people, kind of. Yeah. Like I found all these other really funny, nerdy, uh, aspirational kids who almost none of them were from Manhattan. There were like yeah. three kids in our school that were from Manhattan, even though it was in the city. Yeah. And almost everyone came from Queens, Brooklyn, Jersey, Pennsylvania, upstate yeah. New York. Like people traveled. We all, you know, it was long distance to get there because it was free and it was a good education. But it was all these kids that wanted to stay in this. No one wanted to go home. Like, why would you go home to Staten Island when you could be, you know, 14 and just like have freedom in the city? Yeah. So it was it was finding your it was finding like my people who loved it. Was, 
it was it was finding kids that even today I still am on text chains with and try to go to dinner with whenever I can and joke about things with and that was like the beginning of of really of comedy for me you know like seeing just the way you joke around with friends it was like that first group of friends I found right about. oh yeah 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 because well, you didn't you that didn't... for you did you have did you have an equivalent of was it comedians when you started doing comedy or was there a group of friends before that I had a couple of funny friends and I definitely had a, a, a little a group of people that I hung out with in high school. I don't know when I started to realize the comedy thing. I, I, I knew I knew that I was sort of a smart ass and I knew that it got me through life. But unlike you, I, I didn't seem to learn any great lessons in uh, high school or from uh, or from uh, uh, Temple. <laughs> like I, I knew that uh, Jewish kids seemed to jerk off more than other kids and talk about it, which was, yeah. you know, funny. You know, there was a lot of talk about jerking off for some reason. So I always thought that Jews were funnier because they talked about jerking off. And I turned out to be correct. It turns out to be true. I know, I know a lot of you non-Jew Harvard guys have tried to bully in to the comedy racket. But don't forget, you know, we invented it. I don't, I don't pretend for a second to have any of it. We, I think, I think Catholic kids probably jerked off the same amount, but never right. told anyone. Like repressed yeah. it. I feel like there's such a, uh, I don't, not symbiotic, some some sort of uh, very similar but different thing between Jews and Catholics, where there's so much anxiety. Yeah. And Catholics put it all into their own, like internalize it and pretend like it's not there, and then it comes out in huge. Right. At right, clashes right. or they never address it and it tears right. them apart. Whereas I feel like my friends who are Jewish are able to talk about their anxiety, which is then they seem like anxious people, but they're actually healthier anxious right. people because they're communicating about what they're anxiety. Yeah, and that turns out to be, you know, if you can find a job doing that, then you've really you've really succeeded. Right. Well, I think the Jew anxiety is there's like there's always this inner pressure of of not being good enough. Uh, in a way, uh, in a in the way of like, you know, uh, in a practical sense, like, you know, could you be doing more? Why didn't you get an A? Why aren't you a doctor? Whereas I think it seems that Catholics have a similar thing where they're not good enough, but it's a moral thing. <laughs> like, you know, you're dirty. You, right. You can't don't you, you know what I mean? <laughs> what have you done? How, you, yeah. how are you going to for, yeah. get forgiven for this? <laughs> Yeah, everything feels like you're looking back at a, like a, a dead body. Like, what happened? How did this happen? And the like, and, and I'm like the 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 uh, cycle of like drinking and being like, let's do stuff, and then the next morning like feeling like you need to delete numbers. Yeah, you, you seem to have you had a good go of that. Yeah, yeah, some. It seems like you had quite a few of those experiences. Yeah, all the the cycle of like fun and release because that again, it's all related to not get getting out your feelings right in the first yeah. place. And then you're bat, and then you're letting them go. But there seems ways. to be a point where somehow I don't know. I, I just it's I, and I you know I'm not going to judge you know your Harvard experience against you know anyone else's Harvard experience that I've talked to, uh, you know the other Harvard people. Like Conan, it was really fascinating when you guys were talking because I heard it was such a there were so many things and insecurities he was talking about about being there that I really empathize with and thought like oh yeah i also felt like i was didn't belong there and was not good enough well how did it and, unfold that you got in there how does that you know what was your what was your 
Like, I mean, not, I'm not hung up on it, and I certainly don't resent it, and it, it's a, like an impressive place. But the more people I talk to about it, there is something that gets uh, demystified. But nonetheless, you know, it, it is Harvard, and you knew that as well. So what yeah. what you just applied, or how did that work? Yeah, I applied early, um, and... It, you know, I was, it was non-binding. Like when you apply, it was not, when I, when I was applying there, it was non-binding. So I applied there because it was, it was like the only school that I was, you know, curious about that didn't say like, if you got in, you had to go because I didn't really know where I wanted to go. I hadn't, you know, I would have been truly so happy at any of the colleges I was applying to. I, and I had no, uh, I did not in any way think that I would get into Harvard I also didn't think I would get into a lot of other schools either. Like I thought I would get into some good school and I really now having gone there, the absolute truth is that the top hundred schools in the country could be the same level school or also maybe better for people than, than Harvard. And it's, and some schools are definitely harder when you're there and some schools are, um, have a more academic right, rigor, right. you know, but, and I, I was just lucky that I got in there, you know, I really feel grateful that I got in there, but I also at the same time, don't think it's anything different than, uh, other places. It just feels like it is for, for some well, I Well, I think that in the sense of like, I imagine it happens the same with other schools that there are these kind of, um, cliques and clubs and sort of uh, networks of people that go there that seem to kind of, you know, take care of their brothers and sisters who went there as well. You know, not just in comedy, but in whatever. I imagine it's the same with medicine or any discipline of people who went to Harvard. You're, they're going to be like, oh, you're Harvard? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, come on in. You know, th- I'm sure that happens. Yes. Oh, and it's seeing that sometimes is the worst part of it because you see people be like chummy yeah. in that yeah. Harvard way. And that's like my high school was so the opposite of that. It was all kids that were really like really kids that were humble and grateful to have a good education. And again, would have been happy going to lots of places. So the idea that suddenly people that were at Harvard were like, I went to Harvard, you know, and you hear people bring it up in conversation early on in conversations. And you're like, Oh God, so why? Like who cares? And it's just, it's such a gross that, that part of it. Well, I had really a hard, gross. I have a hard time deciphering between, you know, it seems like, I don't, I don't know. We, however, I romanticized Harvard about, you know, the, uh, about the, in terms of getting a well-rounded liberal arts education that would somehow provide, it seems like you were, had the brain to kind of glean, you know, moral and life lessons from, you know, early Catholicism or from high school or from whatever. But it seems that at some point Harvard became a place where hyper ambitious young people could sort of facilitate their, uh, their ability to network post-college. Some people, I, I think there's lots of people that go leave there and are, I almost want to say traumatized by it because <laughs> yeah, they don't right. know, they don't know what the fuck to do with right. their life. And, and then, they're Harvard people. And, I, I went to Harvard. How yeah. I, I, mean, I remember, I remember Conan had a really funny joke in like a graduation speech that like for the rest of your life, whenever you do something really dumb, people will be like, you went to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think it's that people think that about their lives or they're like, am I doing, am I doing enough? Am I do, you know, people, some people are really, um, burdened but what did you that. study when you went and there? Why did you feel out of place? I think because there was a lot of, I would say 
academic intellectual showboating, you know, people wanting you to think they were really smart. Mm. Um, and that is just a strange instinct. You know, what saved me, you know, not saved in the sense of, I just saved on a like morale level, finding a purpose in life level was the Lampoon, the right. magazine, because I went there and it was all these kids that were not that. They were not showboating in a weird, you know, they were they were almost showboating in a nerdy comedy way. Like it was like walking into a, a, a you know, a, a room, like a room at the cellar where you're in, really intimidated but you can also look around and tell everyone there is really smart. Right. Well, I mean, I appreciated that that part of the book about the lampoon because it seemed like, you know, not unlike, you know, my experience with the comedy store or, or some other thing where you just you, you, you have a respect and a sort of um, uh, a, a fascination and, and you're humbled by the history of the place, you know, that like, you know, it's a magical place and you respect the magic of it. You, you know, just in the way you talk about the building and the, and who was there and what it meant and all that. I, I still feel that way with like the, the, the comedy seller in New York and the store, the comedy store in L.A. I always felt so intimidated there because, right. you know, it's just intimidating. It's an intimidating place as an outsider. And, you know, but when you're there, you can just tell there's like something special about that building and about the comedians who are there. And sure. Sure. But the lampoon goes way back. Yeah, it's super way back before like comedy was even funny, basically. Yeah. You know, yeah. just it used to be like a magazine, but there was one kind of funny cartoon or something. I don't know. Well, I, you know, I, they gave me an honorary whatever they do, you know. Oh, yeah. Or, right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I just felt bad because I went there to, you know, I was sort of excited to see the whole thing. And then I get there, I'm like, oh my God, it's a bunch of kids. And they're, and, you know, and I, I don't drink and I don't, you know, do anything too crazy. So I think they were disappointed that I didn't kind of play along with whatever little rituals that needed to happen when they gave me the, the little medal. And uh, I, I feel like I disappointed them or I let them down. And I was sort of surprised at the whole undertaking. But but I was happy to be part of it. It's a it's a cool like the building there is is such a weird, trippy place. You know, it's yeah. like a and I think it goes through cycles the, the lampoon goes through cycles where sometimes it's really uh, nerdy, writerly, fun, like a funny place to be. And other times it gets, I don't know, kind of weird. Sometimes drug, I think there's phases where it gets druggy. One time yeah. I went back and someone was like, you want to do nitrous? And just hand it, you know, was yeah. like, had a floor full of nitrous canisters. And I was like, this uh, is not yeah. what I remember yeah. or want any right. sort of. Well, yeah, that, yeah. At, at any point in time, all it takes is, one devil to pollute the legacy of a structure for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. You know, like it's occupied by like a bad force and that then, you know, pollutes the rest of the young people in it. And like then an they move on. Generation. Yeah. Sure. But, uh, but it seemed like that experience really kind of taught you the discipline and, and gave you the focus to, uh, to pursue what it is that you wanted to do. Yeah. And you got used to, uh, creative output with a lot of rejection you know you got used to submitting pieces and most of them not getting in to the magazine you know like older editors of the paper telling yeah. you like this is this is shit like you got right. got to be better um and then feeling slow progress over time um and not and realizing that each each small failure like that is not the end of the world and you're you got to get better and 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 not be bitter about it too, to realize, oh, I'm doing something wrong. 
you might disagree with their opinion, but over time you realize I got to get better at this or else I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to public. Anything. See, well, yeah, well, I see. I think that that maybe is the key to your success because like you say those things that you're saying and, you know, before you even finish, my thought is like, well, fuck those guys. <laughs> so like, yeah, so uh, that, that that's that's where I go. I, I don't say like, I'll keep trying. I'm like, who the fuck are you? And and then I drop out of school and I try to do something else. I also feel a visceral initial fuck those guys oh, to yeah. this day. I always feel it. But then again, probably the Catholic in me internalizes it. And it's like, oh, I did something wrong. Like, what's wrong with me? Why did I why am I not better? Why do that's they not so, like me? You know, that's, that's so that's interesting. Because, you know, it's so interesting that, like, as a Catholic, you know, even when you have good parents, your inner voice is going to call you a fucking asshole. Like, you, you, it's like you're, you're, you can't win being a Catholic because it sounds like your parents were lovely people. But and they, they, they brought you up in the right way and your brain works fine. But because of the fucking <laughs> because of the fucking church, you've got the I suck thing and it didn't come from emotional negligence. It came from organized religion that, you know, like I'm a faulty vessel who doesn't deserve anything. And your parents were good people. That's also a good book title. I'm a faulty vessel who doesn't deserve anything. That's what it's going to be. I'm going to make it that in London. When I, when a, go, what do you mean? That's the New way. Testament. That is the New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Old Testament was more like, fuck those guys. We're going to go. Kill yeah, them. there you go. Now yeah. we've isolated the difference. Yeah. But. What did you study? I studied I studied mostly Russian um, and Russian literature. Like I went again. What the I fuck? Went, where did that come from? What was the fascination I, there? It went, you know, I, I started, I went, I went thinking I was going to major in economics. That's what I like right. put down that I was going to major in. Why? Because I thought I get, because I'm from Staten Island. So I'm like, I got, where do you go? You go to, oh, you want out make money. I go to economics. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, right. that's what I do. And then I just again realized that was not going to be my 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 strength or, or calling. And I think to go back to your original question of like why did I get in, I think when I look back, it's probably because of my writing on some level, like the writing I did for my news for like I, I wrote all the time. So I bet things like that, whether it was writing plays or um, newspaper stuff, and even like college essay. Yeah, I probably was something they saw in it that they liked as much as I can tell a reason. It's oh, that's right. Something. You're like a big uh, you were a product of uh, the debate team. Yes, I was a speech and debate person. Oh, yeah. and that was in high school. That was that was in high school. Yeah. So I did that like traveled on the, like the way a sports team travels, but with none of the athleticism. Every single week we were in a different either school in New York or city for like a national tournament. So you, you travel around and like put on a tie and do speech and debate. But that, that got you some stage chops. Yeah. You, you got, again, yeah, that got, you got over sort of the state, the initial stage fright. I don't know how you, I I'm, do you, do you, are you nervous now when you go on stage? No, but it took 30 years. Yeah. I'm still nervous basically before anything. Um, I'm not nervous when I do like a theater who, you know, of me, like yeah. uh, they're all here to see me, yes. but like to go on at the fucking cellar or at the store, uh, not so much a store anymore, but the cellar, you know, fuck that place. That place drives me crazy. Well, some of the most, uh, some of my worst sets, I think, and also the most anxious sets are ones where you're just on a bill, like for a charity event or a, 
you know, and you you want to be there and do it. And then oh, you can't do those where they're eating dinner. Oh my those God. And, then, and no one's there to see you. They're like, no, the most people don't even maybe know who you are. And I'm like, Oh yeah. God. And then you feel like you just can't be, you know, you're, you, you're like the worst version of yourself. You can't get over, you can't get over at those kind of shows. No. You know that? Yeah. I mean, but you know, that's one of those things where it seems like the, the more uh, mature comics just suck it up and be like, yeah, this is going to suck, but it's for a good cause. And don't But like, if you're like me, you're just sort of like, I just want to connect with the people. And then you realize like, Oh, there's no way to, to do that here. Yeah. Like, I don't, I was at the fucking Emmys that you guys hosted and I'm like, Oh my God, how are they doing this? It, it was the, when we first came out, it was kind of like, you know, I can't even fucking getting imagine. hit or something where you, you're a little <laughs> stunned. <laughs> You're like a little, it, the, first of all, you never see it. There's no rehearsal. You just come out into this, whatever, 3,000 seat, it's 4,000 seat theater. Maybe it's 5,000 people, right? In that theater, you come out, yeah. you've never seen that many people anywhere ever, basically. Yeah. And, and like, I just was watching, I was sitting there and I'd, I'd never been to the Emmys. I think I saw you that night. Yeah. Yeah. Briefly. And you, you know, I just watched you two standing out there and I'm like, they look so tiny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What, how are they going to do this? And you, and you're locked into whatever you got to do and there's no warm up. No, no, like icebreaker. You're just going right into a joke you thought of three weeks ago. And you're like, God, I hope this sort of holds up. The one thing I could never quite figure out in my mind, which is, I guess, one of the reasons why I am where I am, is that like, you, do you know, you're just sort of like, we just got to play to the camera. This, this isn't for the people here. This is for the. This is for the show to look good. That's a really hard thing to, that's a really hard thing to, you have to have that in your mind a little bit, but it's such a hard thing to follow through with when you're still in front of all those people. You know, right. like you, as a comedian, you, if you don't feel laughter in the room, it's really hard to say, but it's going to translate well to television. Right. You, know, you right. kind of have to always believe that it's, it should be both theoretically, you know, you want right. both. Right. Right. Um, and the heart, the hardest part about that was choosing what to do without ever, you know, you've never played that room. You've never done, we've never done that event before Yeah, using your material, like figuring out what can get in the show. And then there's so little that you get, that you get to do, or that, that is comedy in the show. Like it's right. almost always just passing out these endless awards. Presentational. Presentational. So it's really hard to, I mean, if I if we could have done it again, we would have prioritized certain things way more than we did because when you're doing it the first time, it almost feels selfish to do that. I right. know that's dumb because we're we're hosting it, but we were hosting, it, but there were other people from SNL involved. There were other people that we were, you know, obviously are being showcased from different networks as a result right. of it. There's a whole other system, so it it felt kind of selfish to say no, we got to do this or we got to do having never done it before. Right. I'm, I'm not a person that pretends I know how things work if I've never done them. I mean, I barely think I know how things work when I've done them hundreds of times. Yeah. And how, and how, what was the reception of that? Uh... Just glorious. <laughs> glorious. Uh, the, you know, the, I would say the reception was not great. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, you know, I just definitely talked to my therapist about fail managing failures. So, you know, uh, but you're, it was, it was, I don't know. The weird thing is when we did it 
going through it, there were, there were moments that felt fun and there were moments that felt like survival fun where you're getting through it and you're not like puking into the audience and you're not, you know, you're saying the words like things like that. When you've never done a thing before, feel like small victories. I just, I felt like, you know, I, I mean, I was completely, you know, empathetic as a comic sitting there watching you guys. Cause I met you guys when I was up there at SNL, you know, uh, to interview Lauren, you and Shay said hi to me. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that's where we really met. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, I remember that because I remember how big, a, also for you, such a, yeah. you know, I haven't listened to your show from the beginning. Like I know that, you know, right, that right, right. Yeah. For you and Lauren. So I saw you and I was, I didn't also didn't want to, uh, be too in your face because I knew based on everything that you were going into a pretty huge moment for you. <laughs> so I was kind of like yeah. trying to send you Zen right. vibes of yeah. you know, God. Oh, yeah. I hope this is a very good. Yeah. And then he, moment. Yeah. And then he Sven gollied me. He just charmed me. You know, <laughs> really indulged me. And I walked out thinking like that guy's probably the best guy I've ever met. You know, he's very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> one of his great skills it's really yeah, it, yeah i just walked out i'm like well, I, I don't i didn't even really want the show i just want now i'm so happy he's just a guy that works at an office oh boy he really fucking did it he also is amazing at instilling confidence in people before like they host or before they that's another it's it's related to what you're talking about but he i've seen him really put people at ease and give them confidence. And it seems like it's coming from such a deep well of confidence from him. Yeah. And after he'll turn to me and be like, Oh God, you know, like, I hope this goes yeah. up. <laughs> like, he'll, he'll, he'll really, he'll be like, I've had to do, he's like, I've had to have this talk with someone like the host almost every week for 45 years, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. He goes, you can't believe everyone who almost everyone who does it for the first time goes through this roller coaster of, so excited to host certain ideas they love by the end of the week, every idea they love, they start to question. And then it's sort of him selling them again on the idea of the show the night before the show. Right. Uh, And, and he, and he can do that because he's seen it be pulled off and he's seen people that were so nervous as hosts, you know, do brilliantly at it. Right. uh, You know, he has to, it's amazing how often he still has to do that. Well, he has to get them, you know, it's it's important for them to listen to him. So, like, I remember when I did Letterman and Eddie Brill, who used to do warm-up, and, uh, you know, and he was the segment producer of the stand-ups, you know, uh, for one of my appearances, and he told me, I re- literally wanted me to rewrite this joke that I'd gotten very used to doing a certain way, hmm. you know, to change it for the audience. And I'm like, dude, I can't, you can't, you're out of your fucking mind. How am I even going to? And he was like, dude, it's going to work. And I'm like, you don't know. He's like, I do know. And then, like, I did what he told me to do, and it worked fine. But, like, I have to assume that most hosts, when they're in a panic, you know, you just got to listen to Lorne, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some, there's probably a balance. You know, I mean, it's it's not like he's always right, but he it's it's actually frustrating how often he is right. You know, right. like, I, I, I find it with my, you know, I'm like, I think it should be this way. And he'll he'll usually say, like, all right, well, think about it. And then I'll think about it for a little bit and I'm like, God damn it. He's right. You know, or, or, or I'll try it. And the other person now yeah. I always, I always like know they're right is Keenan. Like if I'm writing a sketch that Keenan's in, I remember early in the day, he'd be like, I'm not sure about this. And I'd be like, well, let's try it. And he'd be like, okay. 
And then it didn't work. And then I learned that lesson early on. I was like, Keenan knows what the fuck he's talking about. And then from then on, I'm like, yeah, we need to fix that. It's amazing how, like, you know, the evolution of Keenan on that show. I mean, I know he's been there the longest, but he's actually gotten better and better and better. I, I think he's so the, funny. The genius of Keenan beyond his his how how many sheer hours he has logged as a as a performer. Yeah. The genius of him is that there have been so many waves, generations of writers at the show who have all lo- wanted to write for Keenan yeah. and have loved writing for Keenan. And so they've all had distinctive voices. And then they've given a whole new voice to Keenan through the years because they grew up either loving him or watching him on the show and knowing he had all these skills. And so he's actually gotten to do some of the best work by, you know, 15 different writers uh, who have come through the show at different periods of his life. So he's like had all these artistic cycles that are really cool to see. Um, where where he really, right. like gets deep into uh, into it with a with a writer for a while, you know, it's cool. So I did find that you know you must have spent a good amount of time, sort of like you know the balance in the book. I mean, you know, yeah, you you went through some shit, but I, it seems that you know the chapter about your mom and you know the nine eleven must have been a very important chapter to sort of get right for you. Yeah, it was a very, you know, you, it's such a, you, you, I wanted to do justice to her and, Mm. and, 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 and not, you know, I didn't want it to be a melodramatic chapter or a, you know, I, I, I wanted to try to tell it as plainly as possible because, because I think the, the story of it is, is very powerful. And I, I did want to get it right. And, it was a very hard chapter to go back to and reread and edit. You know? Yeah. Now your mother was the medical director of the New York. She was the, her title was chief medical officer for the New York city fire department. Yeah. She, for the New York city, for all the New York city. And she, she did that for, I want to say like 25 years. Um, and what's that? What is that job? That job is you're essentially in charge of the well being of all the firefighters. So, wow she would go to every five, every, you know, four or five alarm fire in the city. She would go to help treat people on the scene. Um, she would, um, you know, work on uh, physical exams for firefighters and help people get back to active duty when they were injured in the line of duty. And she also had, I, I, I would guess the hardest part of her job is also alerting and talking and meeting with families when someone dies in the line of duty um, and, right. and meeting with, you know, often with their, their spouses and their children and, and being the one that breaks that news. Um, and so, you know, it, it, that, that's a pretty, that's a pretty rough uh, part of the job. And when the nine 11 happened, you weren't home. No, I was the, it was the first day of college. It was my first day uh, back in sophomore year. It was my first day of classes, and they were obviously then canceled. But I was I was I had just left New York and gone up to Boston. Yeah, and I, it was just interesting to me the way you sort of documented the thinking was that you know once you realized what was happening, you had to do this math around. You knew your mother was going to go there to Ground Zero. Yeah, but you were sort of like, is 
when would she have gotten there? When, like, because you couldn't get hold of anybody. I was in New York when that happened, and my girlfriend at the time had gone to work downtown, and I, you know, I didn't know where she was or what happened. Yeah, it's it, yeah, and you couldn't get through. Yeah, you couldn't get through to anyone. Couldn't and, get through to anybody. And again, like uh, from. I think it's a New York thing in general, but especially a Staten Island thing is you're constantly thinking about traffic and how much yeah. traffic there is and how you can get, you can never get anywhere. And so right. I really did have faith. I, I really thought that there was no way she could get there because how could you, how could you get there that quickly? Um, and right. so I, that was my, my hope, but of course that wasn't true. And, and, uh, and then I hadn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't talk to her for, for a long time. Like, um, I, I don't know if I even spoke to her for like weeks at, 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 cause I, cause I didn't know where she was and how to, how to contact her. I really just heard updates like, um, later that day. And then not for a while, like for days really from my dad, but you knew she was okay. I knew she had survived, but I didn't know what, I didn't know what had happened. And then she, she was, you know, she stayed, on site there for days. So, but how did you put together? How, where did you get you know these these kind of like the details of of her surviving? Basically, the both towers collapsing. Uh, you know, some I got from her, uh, and and some I also researched because she she had to give testimony to like the commission after nine eleven because she was she was really instrumental in getting funding for the fire department ongoing. And John Stewart was someone who was always so proactive and helpful. And, and she's always so grateful to him because he like really stepped up and, and kept pressure up to get funding for all the, for all the first responders. But she had to do like a full testimony of what happened that day, which I can't imagine oh for her having to go through that again. Um, and and relive all those details. It must must have been just uh, must have been crazy. Because she literally was there before either tower fell, right? She was at the bottom of both uh, uh, towers when they each fell. Yeah, it's insane, yeah. horrifying. And she's trying to find her guys and pull guys out, and and and, and guys that she like guys that she had just cleared for active duty and stuff, and guys she had known for years who were, it was a miracle that they were on the job that day. And, and, and these, you know, different firefighters that, that saved her life in different ways at different moments. And, um, it was really, uh, you know, I, I'm so, it's like a miracle, you know, how is she now? You know, she's, she's good. She's good. She's, you know, she's, uh, has a lot of, you know, it's hard in this time because she's still, she has, she's at risk a lot because of lung stuff related, you know, obviously with COVID there's, you yeah. know, there's, there's lung, long-term lung issues. And, you know, she's still now, now she's seeing a whole other uptick of people from COVID that were first responders because they're affected by it so much more. Um, oh, yeah. And she's been back she, for a while. She was back in the hospital, like on Staten Island, just picking up shifts because they were so overloaded, you know? So which is right. kind of terrifying when you know she's at, at risk for for um, being pretty messed up by it. So it, you know that that was. Uh, but she's 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 a very uh, low key, unassuming, uh, heroic person. That's really uh, I'm, I'm constantly impressed by my mom. Did she know Pete's dad? Yeah, yeah, she did. Yeah, she you know, not like they weren't friends, but she she knew him like, and and, and it's funny like I remember her talking about Pete's dad 
in the years after, you know, and, and, and about Pete, you know, and before you had anything to do with that before SNL, before I, before I think he was even doing stand up or, or, you know, certainly right before I, I knew him as a stand up, but he, um, you know, and she, you know, I think she, she really like, even from afar really loves Pete and really loves his mom. Uh, yeah. And, and I think she, you know, you know, she, she has a real bond with, with a lot of the families that are in the fire department and, and especially f- families that have lost, lost people in the line of duty because she, you know, she saw them often that day uh, or, yeah. and, and, um, I don't know. I think she just, she's a very empathetic person. I think she really, she cares about the, and, and, and she lost so many of her really, really close friends. Like it, it would, yeah. it, truly it would be like if something happened at the comedy store and almost every comic you work with wasn't there, you know, and, and imagine right. going forward, imagine going back there or going back to work. And after that, and uh, I think right. that's a really crazy, crazy feeling. But you uh, probably more stage time. Available. Yeah, that's true. That is the, you know, that's true. I never, th- you see, you see, you see the bright. Side. I'm an optimist. Yeah. They're all <laughs> everyone, dead. Everyone says it's you're more... an optimist. <laughs> no, it's just a, a, a horrible joke, but, um, but I'm glad she's okay. No, no, it's great. And it's crazy. You know, it's crazy to now be on the show with Pete. Like it's crazy to have two people from Staten Island in general. I'm sure. And connected through that. I, I know. And and I can't imagine when Lauren started the show, he wanted anyone from Staten Island anywhere near it. But now we've now there too. <laughs> but I also didn't know about you that, you know, like after Harvard that, you know, you became obsessed with standup. I just didn't, I never knew you as a standup, even though you sent me a poster of a gig we both did. I, I must've run out of there before you got there. Was I there? Yeah, you were there. Yeah, you were there because I. It was a time in my life where I would just stay for the whole show because I had time to do it, you know. And but I didn't talk to you. No, no, no. We didn't meet there. But oh. I saved it because I, I, mean, I was a fan of your show and I saved the poster because I thought it was. First of all, that was such a fun show to do. That meltdown. Nerd melt. Yeah, you, meltdown. Yeah. You know, you were paid in comic books, which is already. Great. Yeah. And then you Hell were. Yeah. You know, sometimes there was an artist who do posters. So I, you know, I didn't have any cool, no one ever did a poster of any show I was a part of. So I remember saving that. Uh, it's probably been eight or 10 years that I saved it with me, you, Kumail, um, Jonah Ray on there. Yeah. Yeah. It was from like, I think my, my producer said it's from 2011, maybe. Okay. Yeah. That sounds right. But I didn't really realize that you really kind of were you know, not unlike your time at the Lampoon where you just sort of force yourself to compulsively write in order to get better, that you really kind of locked in to uh, doing stand-up. But you came up, you know, in the Rafifi zone, which was, you know, alt comedy had already taken its first turn into something more mainstream. And, you know, you know, you had uh, Merman down there and Bobby Tisdale and all those yeah. at 80 Miles were doing that, yeah. you know, with that, that alternative kind of broke out from the original Luna setting. But for some reason, you know, you were very aware of stylistically uh, and also the requirements as a performer of both alt comedy and club comedy because you kind of were fans of the guys down the cellar as well. And you kind of it was interesting to see you write about knowing you were going to have to figure out how to to do both. Yeah. I mean, I remember at the time there were comics like there was one comic I remember who who told me who was like an alt who described himself as an alt comic, but I, I don't think yeah. the alt movement was embracing him. You know, he's like, I would never do a show above 14th Street. 
Like I would never do one, like as a principle. And I remember thinking, first of all, does anyone above 14th Street want you to be doing a show? I'm not sure they yeah. do. But also what a weird mentality to have. Like I won't go to these, you know, it's, it's like, it's like having the idea I'll only perform in New York and LA. Like unless you go around and see the country and try to succeed in all kinds of rooms like what yeah lauren michaels was not a big fan of uh whatever was going on below 14th street i i had a personal experience where is, is, he said to me is that he, true he literally said oh it was a big moment and then it turned up on seinfeld seinfeld said it to him on comedians and cars because that was what he said to me when i met with him there was an article in the times about the alt comedy thing at luna and I was mentioned in it. And I remember it was near the, it was right around the time I met with Lauren for SNL, that meeting that cursed me forever, that haunted me. So one of the things that Lauren said to me when I met with him is like, I don't know what you think you're doing down there below 14th Street, but it doesn't matter. Uh, yes. I, now I remember yes. this quote from you. Yes, that's right. So this guy, but he that, said to you, he said, I, this guy was like a diehard, you know, I'm not going to ever work as a professional comic. Uh, I only do alt shows below 14th Street guy. I think it was more, I think it was a, a dislike for comedy clubs because I think he saw comedy clubs as sort of the establishment. Yeah, I get that. You know, yeah, there was, and, yeah, there was definitely that was going on. But a lot of them were resentful that they couldn't get work at comedy clubs. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them not good, but some of them just because, you know, comedy clubs are privately run by uh, people who book comedy and make decisions about comedy. Maybe they weren't thought to be funny, but they don't want to admit that yeah but i and I, I also you do realize like especially early on the people making those decisions you know who the fuck are they they're they're wrong they're wrong all the time yeah who the fuck are they for sure you know i i a lot of shows early on i did at the strip like at the comic strip and that was like had not moved into the new generation when i was there you know it was still db sweetler yeah yeah it was a lot of and it was great comedians that were that were still working but that i didn't know from anything else nowhere else so you started doing comedy before you got the gig at snl yeah but but really like open mics and bars like no nowhere um nowhere good it sounds like you know in the book your meeting with lauren was was pretty easy it was it was really scary but it was easy in the sense that he didn't i just kind of he just ask me questions like where are you it was honestly i don't think he cared that much i think he was more like where are you from like how you doing like how do you mean he didn't care i mean obviously he cared i mean i think he just you know i think i remember at some point i think lauren said that you don't really know even when someone starts at the show as a writer yeah or cast member really you don't like he doesn't really know them for at least a year or two like he doesn't He's aware they're there. Like, that's the most. Some people he doesn't, you know, there are people that work there. Uh, I remember my friend Matt Murray worked there for as a writer for like, maybe he worked there eight years. He said he never met Lauren, like never met with him, you know, until he left. Really? Like, Lauren obviously knew of him and, yeah. and was at meetings all the time where he was there. But he's like, I never had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Lauren. And so he doesn't meet when you're just a writer getting hired as a staff writer, which is the biggest, was the biggest thing in my life for him, that happens every year. So he doesn't meet every, even with every writer, you know, because right. it, it, that's why it was so much more, there was so much more weight on the meeting with uh, Tina and, and Andrew Steele, who were the head writers then. Cause I, that's who I, you met first. That's, that's what I met with first. And I, I sensed they were probably the ones making the decision about hiring a, a first year writer yeah. rather than Lauren digging in and, 
reading everyone's packets. Right, right. Yeah. So you felt that, like, by the time you got to Lorne, they had decided. Yeah, maybe. Or or I, I thought it could go either way, because sometimes Lorne meets, lots of times Lorne meets with people that he doesn't hire. You know, like, he'll, he might like I know, them. it happened to me. Yeah. So what, so you meet with Andrew and Tina. Yeah. You sense that they liked what you did, but they wanted to make sure you weren't crazy. Yes. Yeah. And, and right. you later realize how many people are kind of crazy. Like when they, in those interviews, like they have people, you know, people read also weird books about how to interview for jobs. And I think they yeah. come in sometimes with strange agendas or um, like have a real game plan that is, yeah. is not at all sensitive to the situation. No. Right. Um, yeah. Like come in giving lots of notes on the show or, you know, things are like, wait, well, you can have these. It's, lots of people at the show have notes and concerns about it all the time. But it's yeah. a weird thing in an interview to be like, here's how your company yeah. needs to get better. You know, it's right, like a, right, right, right. That sometimes maybe in certain industries that works. I don't know. But uh, it, 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 some people have that. And it's just some people are. Uh, I don't know, like it, part, part of it's just a you're going into a, a very high stress, weird community there. Yeah. So I think you're trying to show that you're sem somewhat at ease in a high pressure situation, which that is because yeah. you're about to be in a way more the next, you know, whatever the next week you're going to be in front of the host and pitching them ideas, you know, in, in front of Lauren and pitching ideas. So if you can't survive an interview, uh, then it's going to be, then it's going to be hard. How did you know you got the job? It's always it's always so unclear when people to find out that they that they have the job or that they've been fired. It seems it's never clear. Oh my god, it's very and I've also gone through summers of not knowing, you know, like not knowing if I was fired and and that whole like that very murky process too. But being uh, when I was hired, yeah, Lauren just sort of said like I'll see you around at the end of the meeting yeah but i really right. didn't know you know i didn't think that meant i was i was like oh am i like see you around new york or uh, see yeah. you around like next year yeah. maybe try again right yeah and then i basically they put me in a they like put me quarantine me in a writer's office like a random writer's office yeah and said like wait here a while you know and i was like okay sure i you know i of course if i would wait. how long did you wait to see Lauren? I think I waited like six hours or something, you know, like right, right, a long, yeah. a long time. But again, for me, it was, I would have waited for six days. I mean, happily, I right. would have, you know, and, yeah. and, and I met all my people who become my friends in those hours. Right. Like you, I went into one office and it was like the whole lonely Island team, you know, like Andy and, yeah. and Keith and, and, you know, all they, they had been hired probably three days before, but, they, they, I was already like, teach me what, how does this work? Yeah. Right yeah. Now? Right. And they were so cool. Like they were like cool guys. And I was like, whoa, yeah, what is yeah. this? And um, yeah. like seeing Maya Rudolph in the hallway and, and, and right. Harrison, I'm thinking I was just watching you guys uh, on TV and <laughs> That's you know, I love yeah. you guys. Like you, yeah. and, and also resisting the urge to say, I love you. <laughs> right. Cause you want to be, play it cool but you don't know how because you're just you know you're figuring so they stick you in that room and what happens they stick you in that room and then I, like maybe i'm there alone for half an hour just kind of looking around the walls and seeing trying to process what's been happening 
And then the phone in the office rang like a random writer's phone. And I instinctively thought I should, I should pick it up, <laughs> yeah. which is a pretty crazy move, but I, I don't know why. I was like, I, this seems like it's a call that I should take. And I answered yeah. the phone and it was um, two of the producers on the line and they were like, guess what? You're hired. Like you're, <laughs> you're going to be here. Like you're going to be a writer. And I was like, holy shit. Whoa. And then yeah. Mike Shoemaker was on the phone and he was like, he's one of the producers. And he was like, when can you start? And I was working at this kind of rinky dink advert, like uh, animation company. And I yeah. remember well, I should probably give two weeks notice and, yeah. you know, be, be fair to my boss. So I was like, what about, I, I could definitely do it in, in, you know, let me give two weeks notice. And Mike was like, how about you start tomorrow? And I was like, I will be here. Yes. Anytime tomorrow. <laughs> Fuck that old job. I do not care about it. Why was I so loyal to this? <laughs> my old employer. Catholic thing again. Catholic thing. And so I, I came in the next day and then had to submit two sketches the next day like for writing commercial parodies and uh, and with the, and then immediately started working with all those people I had just met. And it was like, get, it was like going to camp, but then at the end you have to turn in papers or something, you know? And that's, and then it just, that it just started and it, and it hasn't stopped. And it hasn't stopped. And that, and that's been kind of my life at, at times, 90 hours a week. Now, now I try to be there physically less, but, that became my full life in every way for at least 10 years. And, and now I'm trying to be a little more balanced as a human. How long have you been there at total? 15 years. That's like a long. Yeah. And it, you know, it's different because it, it bro got broken up because part of things was like a whole other life and learning curve. And which what? Like, doing, what like getting when I started doing weekend update with Che, like that. Right. So you were a writer for how long? I was a writer for, pro you know, something like 10 years. Uh, something. Like and then when did you become head writer? Or after five years there or something like that? Or after uh -huh. somewhere between five and seven years. And then you're still doing stand up during this time? More and more stand up. Like I then I not not when I was head writer, I, 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 I became hard to do it the same way. But when I was a staff writer, I really miss performing. And I would go, you know, it was a you know, crazy schedule, but I would go four nights a week and do stand up during SNL. So I would go like we had Sunday was our one day off and I would go and do like three shows. And then Monday after our pitch meeting and, and a bunch of meetings, I would go do a set Wednesday, yeah. having been up all night writing and turning things in, I would try to do a set at like 11 o'clock or midnight. Wednesday. Right. Right. You know, yeah. you, you like you, I would go to work at noon Tuesday and I would leave work at, at 11 p.m. Wednesday straight through. And then I would huh. still want to go do a set. And Thursday night, I would try to sneak in a set. Friday and Saturday was impossible. But I just, I missed, perform I needed to get better as a performer. And I, I missed it so much. And then on, it would probably off, help. I would tour. I would go on the road. I would go MC for people. I would feature for people. And any, any, any chance I could go and do six shows in a weekend on the road, it was like, it was fantastic. And it probably sort of paid off in terms of being able to have those chops when he got the update gig. Yeah, although you never, I, I still didn't in any way feel ready or prepared because it's such a different animal. Like it's such a, it's such a specific, uh, strange setup. Um, and it felt very different for a while than stand up. Now it feels closer to that. 
And I, you know, Che is, and, and Che was like so helpful in trying to get it to feel more like stand up for us. And he's yeah. better at it. Like in a sense if he can, he can do a bit now on the show that, that can feel really close to what he would do on stage. And that's something right even now I feel like I'm working on because you're, you're, you're sort of uh, trying to convince yourself that you can go there and do it in that way and, and test it. Well, it seems like, you know, you, over time you evolve a dynamic and you evolve a sort of character uh, as the update person, you know, like, you know, he, he does like, I notice when he gets more personal to the point where you're taken out of the conceit, whereas, you know, a lot of times you, you are grounding the conceit a bit. Right. Yes. Yes. And that's, and I think sometimes that, I think sometimes that can work really well because it's, you know, you're, you're, you there is a grounding in the news and then it can also yeah. be expanded on. And that's kind of right. nice give and take, I think sometimes. And we try to figure out ways of doing that, you know? Um, sure. You get, that's it. When you start, you get all this weird advice about it, you know, where people will tell well, you. Well, it's sort of like the anchor of the show, right? Yeah. Like the thing that I always thought was interesting, Lauren, Lauren always talked about how update, he always imagined that update was like a second start to the show. Right. You know, and I that it was sort of like you got through this first act of a you know, monologue and an opening and some sketches and music. Yeah. And then it was like, all right, let's reset. And I always kind of like that. It's like you're the second half. You're kind of like, all right, let's get ready for some fun, weird sketches, too. So right. you're you're already like halfway to that weirdness. So there's a little more yeah. freedom there, I think. Um, and, you know, I always as a fan of update watching, like I grew up on Norm. And yeah. I also just loved jokes that had that were not really tied to the news of the day, like that were just those random fun later in the update jokes that you remember. Those were the ones I still remember forever. I don't remember what the news story was in like, you know, 1993, except for OJ. But but I remember like one off jokes of his or like a weird fascination with Frank Stallone and, uh, you know, like. Sure him taking out a recorder and, and saying like note to self uh, or jokes that were like, or so the Germans would have you believe or things like that, that I'm right. sure if you haven't seen those updates, anyone listening is like, the, that's nonsense and doesn't sound like a joke at all. But those are things I really remember. Well, I mean, that was something, I mean, I think that when I think about it, now that you say that, you know, those kind of, you, you know, callbacks and themes, you know, those were sort of established a long time ago as part of update really. You know, yeah. Francisco Franco is still dead. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, there have definitely been, you know, character points through sort of repetition and callback that have been part of a lot of people's approach to update. You know, and I think everybody kind of makes it their own. And I guess it sort of must be hard. I mean, you must have, how's it, you know, do you get, how is it received? Has, has, it, has it sort of landed? Is everybody good with it now? I, I, I sense certainly more so. I mean, I think it's always evolving and I don't think you ever know you know, first of all, you're never going to please everyone, but you also, we feel better about, you know, we feel more excited and doing it. And, you know, we feel happier doing it. It's less of an existential crisis of what is this and more of a challenge. Week to week. Are you still the head writer too? Uh, me, me and Michael Che and Kent Sublet, um, have our right head writers together. I think we've been doing this, uh, I think we've been head writers like three or four years. And then before, then there, before that I, I did it with Seth 
for two years, something like that. Yeah. And Rob Klein and, and Rob Klein, yeah, um, for two years. And now, like, now that you guys are down, I thought those two, the the couple of shows you guys did on lockdown were, I thought they were kind of fun I, in a way like, where I like that they were, they were really homemade feeling, you know? And uh, well, yeah, that, and you can really see the vulnerability of all the performers because they don't have this weird, huge support system. You know, you just, you know, it's just you guys, you know, doing it at home. I don't know if you could do a whole season like that. I, I hope uh, not. It, you, you see it both ways. You see the, the vulnerability. And I think you, and, and you also saw, like some nice raw talent moments from people exactly, where you're like, yeah, Oh, that's right. what they would be doing if they were posting this video on YouTube or what they would. Well, that's right. I, I think it's the same thing in my eyes. Yeah. Really? Yeah. But there, but also it shows you the limitations of it. It shows you how much production value can really help with. Certain yeah. You things. don't want, we don't want all television to look like an audition tape. No, that would be. Tough. So hopefully, would be <laughs> we'll tough. Get hopefully through at this. some point that changes. So, you guys are engaged, you and Scarlett? Yeah, that's right. When does that when are you gonna get married? Uh well, um, that's a great question. I don't know when that does she ask you that? Do you ask no, her? No, that? no, no. We were no, we were we were we were supposed to, um, but we uh now we don't know when we really can because of right, you know, it's it's a very sure. evolving thing. Um, but I don't know, you know, I truly I don't know when we you know we have at risk people in our families that, you know, uh, yeah. right. Knows, well, yeah, right. You can't, who knows when we really want to get people together for a large gathering, you know? Oh, but you didn't have to cancel anything. Well, there's some, okay. But it's, it's, all right. It's, you know, but you, but you guys are hanging in, you're doing okay. Yeah. I mean the, you know, the, the one uh, nice part about being, uh, hold up is you know we in some ways are more into a married life than we would have otherwise Ever been. been and and you know um, her daughter rose and i have spent like tons of time together and that's great like that's a thing you never can get uh oh yeah you, you know yeah this is like you know it's it's like uh exponential like the time you spend in in lockdown or in this situation you guys are in you know, it would have taken like the intimacy would have spread out over like three years. Like these four, three months are equivalent to like a year and a half yeah, or two years of like, you know, intimacy time. Yeah. And it's, it's, that's something you, I think you have to appreciate. Um, sure. Uh, for and, sure. And you know, it's, that, that that's cool. That, 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 that part's good. And then of, of course it's like a, a crippling, anxiety about not knowing when work will happen or what kind of work can happen and it's fucking on every level like you know on every level or what's gonna or whether the you know the country is gonna survive yeah (laughs) you know the economy the country the yeah it's like it's a lot to manage yeah it's It's really really fundamental things you think will generally be okay are not yeah okay totally unstable yeah so does Lauren call you when, you know, see how you're doing? I, I talked to him once this summer, like since the show's ended, I think I talked to him once, you know, he'll usually call like for my birthday and say, you know, have a birthday. Uh, but he'll, I saw, I, I talked to him once just to sort of, he called just, I think just to vaguely talk about next year, like, you know, almost brainstorm, like, can it happen? What's it going to be? You know, 
on a practical right. level for the show like what do you yeah what what do you think but but no one knows it's like even experts now don't know which is the scary part you know like you don't know people are kind of just throwing out random theories about when when work can happen i mean i'm fascinated to see the nba and what what's you know whether that works and to what extent and what the pitfalls of that are because that'll that'll dictate so much for i think showbiz you know yeah they need to figure out a couple of things like uh, an effective treatment uh uh you know an effective test that gets fairly quick results and then hopefully a vaccine but you would think some treatments and a test doesn't seem like anyone can do anything without a test that gets results in a half hour. Yeah. So like everyone can do it day of and then go to work. Yeah. I mean, but also you need the test to be pretty, pretty accurate uh, or else yeah. then you're, you know, and, but I, yeah. now I'm always, you know, remember the beginning, they, everyone kept saying, you don't need masks. That's crazy. Yeah. You don't need that. And then they're like, actually, you know, you really should have masks. And then there's things like where they say, you, you know, you're not going to get it from your cat you can't yeah immediately yeah. i was like oh, i'm gonna get it from a cat like i know that's yeah. gonna you know <laughs> yeah it, i don't know you, you've done okay in life i don't think that it's in the cards for you to get it from a cat <laughs> I, I just don't I also we don't have a cat so it would be a real strip <laughs> if i started really hanging out with strays <laughs> you had to be out there in the garbage with the ferals <laughs> All right, buddy. It was good talking to you, and the book's funny, and there's a lot of stuff we didn't talk about that's in there, and uh, uh, I'm I'm glad you're well. Thank you. I, I really, I'm very honored to be on your show. I've listened from the beginning, and I'm I've uh, I I was actually um, I'm very intimidated talking to you, but I also I'm very honored to be here. I, I appreciate you having me on. Did, it didn't get any easier throughout the. No, no, talk? it did. It actually it was immediately easier. I was I I was scared going. I didn't know. I you know we haven't really talked, so I. I was, I, I'm naturally a scared person. So I was worried, but you, but you kind of knew what to expect, right? I, I knew general things maybe, but I, I, I don't know. Who knows? It worked out for you. though. It could have started off with some like, you know, really, uh, yeah, I, re I really hate you. Some yeah. crazy yeah, aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, You're the, I don't know anything about you. And I just don't like you. <laughs> yeah i that definitely occurred you know that thought definitely crossed my mind well that wasn't the case all right buddy i really appreciate it yeah. thank you take care of yourself okay that was me and colin jost right it was a good story right good story uh his book a very punchable face uh, is out tomorrow and you can order it right now and now I'm going to play some guitar that it took me uh, like a long time to figure to get this the simple shit right. And then I ended it badly. But what doesn't end badly?
Boomer lives. <laughs>